All right, uh, good afternoon. This is uh, Calvin Wayne Pennywell Jr. This is episode four of The Glory in Our Stories. I have the privilege and honor of interviewing one of the coolest uh, cats I've, I've met in the last couple of years. I haven't had the pleasure of taking one of his classes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm interviewing today uh, Adam, Professor Adam Deal. Um, I met him, we were, I forgot, what was that, that thing we had downtown where we would read each other's work? Oh, um, uh, Non-Required Readers. Yes. I met him at one of those meetings, and we had the opportunity of chatting things up afterwards. And he was telling me about jazz at that moment, and it was kind of weird because I'm standing, I'm thinking, this is this random white guy <laughs> schooling me on jazz and he, he knew what he was talking about and I was I was intrigued and then later on down the line I learned he was into the Beatles um, I mean who, who wouldn't be it's so many like they opened so many doors for a lot of artists and even to this day they're like highly celebrated so anybody that's not only a fan of them but a larger spectrum of music yeah. uh, really intrigues me um, and then he was telling me about how uh, how he felt about Kendrick Lamar, and which we will go into later. Of course. Uh, but um, I wanted to take this opportunity to not only learn more about Adam, but introduce him to a lot of more people who aren't aware of where he's come from, um, what inspired him to um, enter the education field, and um, his direction of study. I mean, I was in the process of, and I'm sure he'll mention uh, later, I was in the process of reading one of his books, one of his novels, and I was at work, and in between patients, I work at a dental college, and I actually found myself turning the page. I know it's typical saying, like, it's a page turner, but it actually is, and it intrigued me because this is a, a male author writing from a young female's perspective, and I know sometimes that can be very challenging, but I actually found it very convincing. I felt like I was actually in the young girl's shoes during this time where jazz was uh, a major part of the culture. Like it was infused in it, like you lived it. And I haven't finished it yet, but I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, to putting a bookmark towards the end of that so I could uh, find out exactly what happened. So, um, Adam, I just wanted to give you the opportunity now to just... Let us know, like, where you come from. Like, I, sure. I, I just, I know you teach here, and I, I see you around, and but I never knew, like, what's your origin story. Yeah, so I'm just curious as to, um, how did you start out? Like, where did you originate? So, uh, I'm originally from Nashville, Tennessee. Grew up there, born there, grew up there. You know, lived there until I finished high school. Um, my dad's side of the family has been in Nashville for about mm, almost a about not quite 150 years, but like 1870s or 80s. Um, the Deal family immigrated from Germany in the like 70s or 80s of the 1800s um, when there was just a big influx of immigration from Europe uh, to the United States, and so um, he's been there for a long. You know, his family has been there for a long time, and then. Um, my mom's side of the family is from East Tennessee, so um, my grandmom is from Madisonville, Tennessee, which is uh, just a small, you know, uh, kind of mountain town close to Knoxville, or it's kind of in between Knoxville and Chattanooga. 
And then uh, my mom's dad's side of the family was from Johnson City, which is like the Tri-City area and the north, you know, northeastern kind of the tip of the, the uh, parallelogram that is Tennessee. <laughs> um, so anyway, so, um, so they've been, you know, both sides of my family have been in Tennessee, you know, for at least 100 years. Um, and my parents still live in Nashville today. Um, my grandmom on my mom's side is still living, so she's she's still in Nashville as well. Um, she moved there when my granddad got a job at Peabody College, which was um, then, I think, an independent teaching college, but it's associated with Vanderbilt, and now it's part of Vanderbilt. So um, my granddad, um, like I said, he was from Johnson City, and... Um, I don't know that much about my family beyond my grandparents, um, but I mean, obviously, I know that my dad's side of the family's from Germany. Um, but uh, my granddad, um, his dad was—I just had found this out recently. His dad was a like a art gal, not art gallery, art framing business owner. So he had a business where they like made and sold frames for art. So. Um, there are a ton of paintings in my grandmom's house that are all by uh, my great-grandfather, and they're just really remarkable. I mean, they're like, you know, Impressionist-style, kind of like early 20th century, um, you know, just really beautiful works of art. Um, and, you know, I'd always seen the paintings, but never really known, like, well, I know he wasn't like a famous painter, he just he did it as a hobby, but it makes a lot of sense now knowing that he owned a frame shop. <laughs> it's like, well, you're just going to get inspired to, you know, to make art when you're around it all the time. So, um, so I learned that recently, but I've known for a long time that he fought in uh, World War One, And wow. so, um, so he, he was about that age range where he would have been a young man, you know, in the World War One era. Um, and then... Uh, my grandfather was born in, I think, 1929, um, and then my grandmom was born in 1931, uh, so she's 86 now, and uh, unbelievably still teaching, um, but I'll get to that in a second. So, um, my grandfather uh, and grandmom met at East Tennessee State University, which is in uh, Johnson City, um, and he was, I think he was a PE major, because that's, that's what he taught when, mm -hmm. he, when he got to Peabody. But, um, but anyway, so, so he was just kind of a, you know, a, a, someone ex that excelled at school and, and went and got his master's. Um, I think he got his master's at East, East Tennessee as well. So uh, my grandmom had this, like, I won't marry you unless you get a master's. And <laughs> so anyways... Um, so she did, and um, and then they had my mom, you know, shortly thereafter, um, and they, they kind of lived in East Tennessee for a while. Um, he was a high school PE teacher. Um, they lived in a place called Oakdale, Tennessee, which is, um, if you can imagine, well, you, you know, like like the, the, the Midvilles of the world, like, like the, these little towns outside of Augusta, that are like little towns outside of the little town. So like my wife is from Waynesboro, which is to me a little town relative to Augusta or certainly Nashville, but it's like way bigger than, you know, some of these even smaller towns, you know, further afield. Um, but Oakdale is certainly one of those. Like it's, it's so far removed from anything. Like I, I went uh, on a trip there to just to kind of like, 
you know, go in the footsteps of my grandfather, um, just to see like what, you know, what kind of world he, he was coming up in. Um, so, so he taught there and then he taught in Madisonville, which is, uh, where my grandmom is from. Um, and I think, I think my mom was born either in Madisonville or in Knoxville, which is, you know, like maybe like less than an hour's drive. Um, but anyway, she grew up in Madisonville until she was about six or seven. They moved to Nashville. So uh, that brought mom's side of the family to Nashville. And like I said, uh, my granddad at that point, um, I think he was getting a Ph.D. And he got it like he finished it and then they stayed. So um, so maybe he was in school and like working or maybe, I think maybe my grandma was teaching I don't, I don't know all the details, but, um, but anyways, um, what ends up happening is my granddad gets, um, you know, a, a position at, at Peabody, which, you know, like I said, is now Vanderbilt's, like, teaching, uh, you know, college or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and he was a, a physical education professor, um, and so he taught there for several years. He actually got a found, uh, oh, not foundation, he got a Fulbright Fellowship, which is, um, you know, one of these grants that you can get to study abroad. Um, and so he got to go and teach, um, you know, what stuff he had been developing as a, as a professor mm-hmm. to Finland. Uh, right. So he got to go to Finland for a year, and my mom and grandma went as well. Um, but sadly, when he got back, he uh, developed Hodgkin's disease, which is like cancer of the lymph nodes. And um, he, he passed away in 1967. Yeah. So uh, my mom was 13, and my grandmom at that point, I think she was already teaching. Um, but anyways, that <clears throat> that kind of like, that was the moment where they were either going to go back to, you know, to East Tennessee where her family was from or just kind of stake a claim and make it. Um, and so they just, you know, they stayed, and my grandmom was a high school, uh, sorry, elementary school teacher. She taught third grade for like... 33 years or so so she had been teaching for a couple years but she she stayed on uh all the way until the late 90s uh and at that point she retired from teaching at usm which is a a private school kind of close to downtown nashville it's right it's right next to um vanderbilt um but um that's where my mom went to high school and then um and then she taught ESL at a public school for like 10 years, I think. No, maybe not quite 10, maybe like six or seven years. Uh, and since 2004, she, she went back to school like in the early 2000s um, and got, I think, a master's degree and an EDD, so education doctorate. And since 2004, she's been teaching at Tennessee State University. So uh, grandfather was a college professor. Forty years later, grandmother, college professor, and and you know I, I am college professor miraculously, but um, but that's you know that's kind of my mom's side of things, and then my dad's side, um, he uh you know interestingly enough, you know my the the, the Germans and their their love for beer, um, <laughs> my great great, I, whatever the the son of the man that came over. Uh, was actually named Adam Deal, so I'm mm-hmm. named after him, along with, of course, the first man, Adam. Yeah. Um, but um, he started a bottling company called Deal and Lord, um, 
And they bottled, bottled, you know, obviously alcohol, but, you know, whatever else you needed in a bottle, seltzer water or, or, you know, sodas of different kinds or whatever. Um, And so that got to be a kind of a thriving business in the, like, 1910s or so and, you know, 20s before the, before, well, not the 20s, the, before Prohibition, uh, which was, I think, 1919. Mm -hmm. Um, It got to be a big business. Um... And so my great-grandfather inherited the business, but then when Prohibition hit, um, it just wiped out a lot of business for, you know, for the alcohol industry. So, um, you know, they kind of built their way up in Nashville, and, and then um, that kind of brought them back, back down to earth. So my granddad, um, like his dad, the, the one that inherited the business, um, he just kind of lost his way and, and just, you know, ended up leaving um, my great-grandmom. Um, and so my granddad and his brother grew up with just my great-grandmom, and then she remarried someone um, that had, like, a really big library. Like, he had, like, a ton of books, which I, I also have a ton of books. Um, but that, I don't really know much about the man, but I know that he had, like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of books, which at the time was uncommon. Mm-hmm. Um, and those books were in my grandmom's house until she moved out, um, and she's since passed away. But um, but anyway, she she married my grandfather in like the early, uh, maybe late 40s, because uh, my dad was born in 52. Um, so, so my grandfather worked as um he worked in like the publishing business in nashville because there's a lot of christian publishing in nashville so he worked for the methodists um the upper room uh publication so um so they lived in green hills which is like at this point a very high priced fancy place in nashville but at the time it was kind of just like you know, just just like Evans or, or Grovetown, like it was like that was the suburban part of Nashville, whereas mm-hmm. the center of the city was still the like, you know, thriving place at the time, um, and so, um, so my mom, my dad meet, uh, and it turns out that they lived like about a quarter mile away from each other. They lived so close <laughs> to one another, but they didn't they didn't go to the same high school, so. Um, so they meet and you know they they dated for a couple of years and got married and then had me December nineteenth nineteen eighty two, um, and basically in a nutshell you know I, I grew up as a child of the eighties and the nineties and um, knew a lot of like kid culture stuff from the eighties I really don't you know I, I still feel like I'm learning a lot about the eighties from an adult perspective yeah um, but the nineties I certainly was pretty plugged in. Um, I remember a lot of, you know, a lot of the seminal events of the 90s, like Bill Clinton getting elected and um, the Rodney King riots and the World Trade Center bombing, the first one, um, the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, the OJ trial, you know, a lot of the things that kind of define the decade, um, I really, you know, remember making an impression on me. Of course, I've learned a lot more about them as I've gotten older, uh, but I went to... Uh, I went to, you know, private high school or private grade school, and then I, I was really dead set on going to public school for 7th through 12th grade because I got into this magnet school that was kind of like Davidson except didn't have the fine arts emphasis, mm-hmm. uh, but it was certainly like, you know, 
a really good school. Um, and so I, I thought I was going to go there, and somehow I ended up at this private school that was an all-boys school. And so um, it's very, you know, very impactful on me to go to school all-boys because, um, you know, it, it, it really changes the learning environment to not be in class with the opposite gender. Um, and so, so I went there seventh through 12th grade. Um, and, and while I was there, I'd, I'd started to play saxophone when I was in fifth grade. Um, but it was kind of like, well, I think maybe I'll do this. You know, I wasn't committed to it. Um, but by seventh grade, I had to pick, do I want to do uh, vocal music like cor- you know, chorus or do I want to do instrumental music, uh, jazz band. So I, I picked jazz band and um, took six years of it, uh, ended up switching from alto to tenor in 11th grade. But um, that was really when I started to kind of learn a lot about music and, mm-hmm. and um, how to play music, how to read music, um, and just how to love music that was different from just what was popular at the time, which, you know, the 90s had amazing music, uh, at least in my opinion. Um, but I feel like playing jazz music helped me learn to appreciate it. And then um, when the Ken Burns Jazz Program came out in, I think it was 2001, was either 99 or 2001, um, I watched that all on PBS, and that just hooked me. I just thought, you know, jazz was just the coolest thing. And, you know, it's, it's just such a, a endlessly... Uh, impressive and, and inspiring form of, of creativity. Um, so that, you know, that kind of set me up for one of my big passions. And then I've always been a big, like, radio listener. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, growing up, I remember listening to a lot of oldies. So I got into a lot of, like, Motown and, you know, the Beatles, like, like Calvin mentioned. Um, and, and just slowly kind of, like, developed an understanding of what, what kind of music was out there. And then I really got into, like, R&B and rap in the 90s. Um, and, of course, I'm still into those things now. Um, but, you know, I feel like music w- was, was really influential on me. Um, and then also influential on me was growing up in the church. Um, I grew up in a Baptist church and, you know, was very kind of, like, I'm doing this, you know, this is what my parents want me to do. I'm going to do this to please my parents. Um, but got to the point where I was really becoming increasingly, you know, independently committed to it. Um, and just as with everybody, you know, you think you're committed to it and then, you know, times get tough and you're not as committed as you think, as you thought you were. Um, but when I got to college, I, you know, I, I applied to a bunch of places and didn't get in any of them, but I did get into University of Georgia, uh, which, you know, I didn't know much about UGA, um, had only been to Atlanta, so I'd never been to any other cities in Georgia, um, but, but got in, and so I went to visit to kind of confirm that I was, like, okay with doing this, and, and loved it, and, and went there, and really enjoyed my experience, um, but at that, you know, at that juncture, I feel like, I went just far enough away from my parents that I didn't feel like I could, you know, lean back on them too easily, but they also didn't have as much influence over me. Um, and so I had to kind of learn who I was and, and, you know, the central part of that ended up being my faith that I just really, um, recommitted to, to being a Christian and really learn 
what does it you know what does it actually mean you know to follow Jesus and and um, you know a lot of that was eye opening and I had to kind of like choose okay well this is what my parents said this is what the Bible says you know which one's going to work um, and so that was you know that that was a big you know leap of leap of faith and, and growth in in my life and while I was at while I was at University of Georgia. Um, I was an English major. Um, got to take a lot of good classes, you know, that, that taught me about the history of literature and, and the different movements of literature. Um, and I only, sadly, I only got to take one creative writing class, uh, which you know, Calvin got to take many. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but I, I did really love you know being in creative writing class, and and ever since probably around ninth or tenth grade, I really had a passion for poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember writing uh, a poem that actually got published in the student literary you know, journal or whatever at, at my high school um, called, I can't remember the exact title, but it, it had to do with, like, are you proud to be an American uh, living in a world so drenched with sin or something like that? And it's oh, it's perfect that would be right now. <laughs> I know. And it was like, like when I think back on it, I remembered, like I just watched the movie Psycho and it was mm-hmm. like, we're halfway to heaven but already in hell and it's just like staying in the Bates Motel. Oh, wow. So, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the whatever, 20 years ago today, uh, Professor Deal taught, taught the band to know what to do with the current times. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I feel like I had a big... Um, you know, creative impulse in me from a young age, or not young, but, you know, like high school forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but that it's always been an ebb and flow. I've always been really interested in creative works, and I've been interested in being creative. Um, and so over time, I kind of developed uh, my interest in guitar and, you know, playing other instruments besides saxophone, um, and ended up starting to write songs. I'd written a couple of songs in high school, and they're very much just like, trying to copy as closely as possible like the band I was into at the moment. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's how it always starts, you know. But um, but by, by college, I was starting to kind of figure out, you know, who I was as a creator. And, and in the years that followed, I really kind of blossomed into, like, I love writing music. I, I feel like I have a very distinctive style now. Um, but it took me, you know, 15 years to kind of, find my voice, find my, you know, my range, my types of, you know, songs that I wanted to tell, you know, stories I wanted to tell in music and, um, and having that creative outlet just for my emotions and whatnot. So, um, so UGA, uh, English major, um, took a whole class, uh, with this girl and never talked to her, but mercifully I visited a class the next semester uh, and was like, oh, there's that girl that was in my class. I should talk to her. And so I, I didn't have the nerve then. So I visited the same class again at the end of the semester, and went up to talk to her afterward. And and now she's my wife, Whitney Raul Deal. Um, so yeah, we met in December of 2003. Um, dated the rest of college and um, got married on March 31st, 2007. So. Um, as we finished college, she went to go to uh, get a master's degree at University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. So I moved to Charlottesville to be close to her. 
um, and then moved in with her when we got married uh, in a wonderful basement apartment. Um, and and then we you know we just kept moving on up from there. We uh, I got a job in Chattanooga, Tennessee at also a boys' school, um, but uh, the school of Macaulay. Um, that's um, it's it's a boarding and a day school. So my high school was all day students, meaning you know nobody lived there overnight. Um, but this school was like close to half boarding, half day. So uh, it was a different experience than my high school. I was I think I think I was expecting to be just like it, and it really was pretty different um, while still being. Yeah, you know, there's there's just a feeling of being around all guys. Um, certain, you know, you're just gonna have certain kind of potty humor that shows up, and um, I, I don't know, just certain kind of kinds of wackiness that that guys would only do around other guys. But um, but uh, I taught there for two years. Um, so I was a tenth grade English teacher there. I coached swimming, so that was that was my sport growing up. Um, but uh, the you know the economic downturn started and and the school as wealthy as it was was like you know we we might need to cut back on some people and and I was one of the people that they just kind of said well we don't know if it's if we're gonna have a position for you next year you better try and find something permanent you know f- find something you know that, that's more permanent than this mm-hmm. um, so uh, just so happened that. Whitney was teaching at the girls' school uh, at the time, so she actually didn't get, you know, she, she didn't get hired back because they were, they were like cutting like nobody's business. So uh, we both had to look for jobs, and we actually both got jobs at Westminster Schools of Augusta, which brought us to Augusta. Um, and uh, we both had a really hard first years. I think it was just, you know, we both were at schools we really liked, and we had to move kind of you know, suddenly, um, and Augusta was just a, a, an adjustment, you know, as any new place is going to be, um, and I just had a bad year, and, and just was a bad fit for the school, and they were a bad fit for me, and I actually didn't get asked back, so, um, so two years in a row, I was, you know, looking for new work, and, um, I was just burned out with teaching, and felt really, you know, downhearted, because I just, I felt like I was, you know, like acting, you know, go, going on a leap of faith to come here in the first place and then to have it just go so badly was just, you know, maybe very gun-shy um, about teaching. But I took a year off. Um, I actually went back to Nashville for long stretches of time to try and get my music going, which uh, obviously I'm not a famous rock star, so it didn't, it didn't work out the way I thought it would. Uh, but I do think it worked out the the way that was best for me because I still make music till this day, um, and I you know I love doing that. But I I got back into teaching, which I think was where I was supposed to be. Um, but that that's where Calvin and I started to cross paths because I I got uh, an adjunct position at Augusta State University uh, in 2011 and um, taught part time for four years um, and. Uh, after four years, they, I guess they felt like they could trust me, <laughs> and uh, it just so happened that a bunch of professors left, and they kind of needed to fill spot, you know, some spots last minute, um, and I, you know, they said, "Well, would you be interested?" And I was like, "Yeah, I could do that," um, but before I got on full time, um, I was looking to get back into high school teaching, and so. 
um, every year after the first year, the first year was just kind of like getting back into doing it and kind of re- rediscovering my love of teaching. Um, and I really, I really loved my first year at ASU. Uh, the second year, I, I still liked it, but it was like, I don't want to be, you know, part-time making this little money for, you know, forever. So I started looking into getting a high school job, and I actually got an interview at a school in Asheville and uh, didn't get the job, and it was very disheartening. Um, and then the next year, also tried to get a, you know, get something going and, and, um, and um, got an interview in a school in Baltimore, which is one of my uh, interests because I love the show The Wire. Um, and also like Homicide Life on the Street, but it's less well known. Um, but, uh, I interviewed there and didn't get that job either. And so that was really kind of a one, two punch of, you know, just feeling like, well, I just don't know, like, am I meant to go back into high school teaching or not? Um, and so, uh, after that year, um, I felt like I needed to up my game. And so I had this idea for this class, uh, called Good Kids, Mad Cities, that was going to use the album Good Kid, Mad City by Kendrick Lamar uh, and just look at it like a literary work, because it is, and, um, you know, started kind of brainstorming what would go with this. And, of course, the first thing that came to my mind was probably the last thing that would come to most people's minds when they think about Kendrick Lamar, James Joyce. Um, But the two are very similar, and I think now, you know, after after To Pimp a Butterfly and Damn, I think, you know, music critics and fans and even skeptics would be like, yeah, if there's anybody in, in rap music that could be compared to James Joyce, it's, it's Kendrick Lamar. Um, although I'm sure there are others that are equally comparable, but he, he's certainly like, you know, someone I think would come to mind when you think about super complex, super um, just like... Um, knowledgeable about the entire spectrum of his of his genre mm-hmm. um and someone who you know writes about his hometown just over and over and over again so um so i came up with james joyce uh and i picked james baldwin uh who's you know a super interesting writer uh and wrote stories you know kind of about growing up in harlem which th- this kind of this kind of brings it all full circle for me um and and um, picked the, the movie Boys in the Hood, which is just, I mean, if if ever there was a Shakespearean tragedy that wasn't written by Shakespeare, it's, yeah, it's Boys in the Hood. Yeah. Um, it's it's really one of the most powerful movies I've ever seen, and you know, it's it's one of my favorites, even though it's hard to watch. It's mm-hmm. it's it's so alive, and and you know, it's I mean, it's what made Ice Cube. A movie star, you know, he was he was famous as a musician, but you know, that's the movie that kind of put him in the like triple threat role or whatever. Is well, I don't know what his third thing would be, but you know, <laughs> acting, rapping, and being a mogul or whatever. Um, but uh, the the other thing that I used in that class, I, I'm big on. I try as best as I can to represent as many kinds of voices as possible in a class. Um, Except for one class, I did all female artists and writers, uh, but that was I was trying to do that on purpose. Um, but uh, this class, you know, obviously I was talking about 
you know, a rapper. And then I've got, you know, a, a black writer from New York from the 50s and 60s. And then, of course, I've got Boys in the Hood. Um, and then I've got James Joyce. <laughs> and then uh, I actually thought, well, I want to have a female in here. So, you know, who would kind of, who kind of tells tales of the inner city, um, you know, about, you know, kids trying to, you know, escape the temptations and, and live to tell the tale. Um, and I thought of uh, a poet who, who wrote a, a poem that made a big impression on me when I was 19, and that's Gwendolyn Brooks. Um, her poem, We Real Cool, uh, made such an impression on me when I was a freshman in college that I was like, one day, someday, I'm going to write a novel that tells the story of this poem that, like, creates the characters and, and, and really fleshes out. I mean, the poem's eight lines long. We real cool. We, we left school. We lurk late. We strike straight. We sing sin. We thin gin. We jazz June. We die soon. Yeah. So uh, for the longest time, I was just going to call it We Real Cool and just have it be, you know, this, this is literally just the way that you make a movie out of a novel, I'm making a novel out of a poem. Yeah. Uh, but, but it, uh, you know, it developed and, and manifests itself slowly over time. Um, and it took a long time for me to start writing. Like, I had a lot of ideas and a lot of concepts and a lot of things I wanted to kind of, you know, subtly put in there to kind of give it, you know... A, a literary text feel where you could write papers on it and have discussions about it that are, you know, oh man, what if this means this? What if this means that? What, mm -hmm. what if this character is, is connected to this literary character or this person in real life or whatever? So, um, so it took a while, but I remember I started writing it Master's Week of 2014. So right, right before I got turned down for the Baltimore job, I kind of like just just started writing the story and um i really i really hadn't made much i'd say i'd probably written about three chapters by um about february of 2015 so not quite a year it took me to write the first like two or three chapters uh but in about february of 2015 i just got i got really down because I'd been teaching and I had this Kendrick Lamar class and it got all this press, you know, all, all these magazines and newspapers and websites were all talking about it, um, rightfully so, because it's an awesome class. But, you know, I, I really like, I didn't really want people to be like, oh, Adam Deal's awesome. I just wanted to be like, this is an awesome idea and this should be what every English class is trying to do, which is talk about what's happening in the modern creative world that connects yeah. to the great things that have come before it, you know, and putting, putting things that are great now into context outside of, I mean, Kendrick is really not served by comparing him to, you know, Drake or, or J. Cole or the other rappers of now, because while they're good, you know, Kendrick is so good and so thoughtful about his releases that you know it, it's like well J. Cole's trying to kind of keep up with Kendrick's pace the way that like Brian Wilson was trying to keep up with the Beatles like mm -hmm. the Beach Boys Pet Sounds is an amazing record but it kind of it, it's like the Beatles have five records as good as Pet Sounds 
and and that's kind of how Kendrick is to 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 his competition to me. So, you know, I I really wanted to kind of take a voice out of the context of the modern world and and look at it, you know, from a sense of like the types of people that want to tell the stories of the places they're from, even, you know, warts and all, like mm-hmm. even the flaws. Uh, because I think that's what makes Good Kid, Mad City such a compelling thing to listen to is it's it's not about perfect people, uh, but I feel like it's, you know, it starts with this prayer that these boys recite with this woman. And, um, of course, Kendrick got Maya Angelou to be the woman on the, on the record, and, and it parallels this story that Maya Angelou talked Tupac down from, you know, being really hot-headed about something and it's very it's very clearly a connection to Tupac and of course to Pimp a Butterfly that connection is is explicit like it's very clear on that record that Kendrick wants people to you know say Tupac Shakur Kendrick Lamar you know um <laughs> but uh but yeah so so you know I I I got the class going and and you know it it got a lot of press, and, and then they didn't have any classes in the spring for adjuncts. So I got really depressed, uh, feeling like, you know what, that was the best I could do as a teacher. I don't know where to go from here. And and so I just kind of started writing the novel in earnest and, and really wrote the whole thing in like six months. Um, so it's, you know, it's 27 chapters or so, and uh, it's like 100,000 words, and I, every day, well, not literally every day, but every day that I could, I would go to Starbucks, which I'm sitting here with a, a water from Starbucks as I'm talking now, but uh, I'd go to Starbucks and just crank out as much as I could of, of um, We Jazz June, which is what I decided to title it, um, and, well, there's a character named June Bug, and I mean, it's... It's, it's very much a story about the family of this girl that's the narrator, Lily Miller. Um, and as Calvin said, you know, here's this white 30, 30 or 30-something-year-old, 30 uh, 34 years young. Um, but, you know, at the time I was 32 when I was writing it. But, um, you know, here's this 32-year-old white guy writing from the perspective of a, a 9-year-old black girl. And then she's, she's, so she's 9 at the beginning of the novel, then she's 13 then she's 17, and the novel ends when she's 21. Um, but, uh, you know, how did I do that? You know, it's kind of a, you know, I have to say it's kind of like half like, okay, I absorbed everything I've ever, uh, you know, <laughs> ever looked at, heard, listened to, experienced, you know, every person I've ever known. It's like 50% that, 50% like the Holy Spirit guiding me. I mean, it's just, it, it felt like I just got into the persona of this person that's nothing, in some ways, nothing like me, but really it's kind of like, it's like she's maybe like 25% me, 50% like my wife, and about 25% like, you know, all these other people that I know or have read about or whatever. And, um, and you know, I, I just, I kind of came up with this idea of who's her family and, what do they, you know, what do they do? So, so you know, as Calvin said, this is set in the 40s and 50s in New York City. So uh, jazz is, is really at its height. You know, uh, swing music was just starting to lose its popularity. 
uh, after this after the World War II, you know, uh, like it was at its height, you know, as World War II was happening, and then uh, bebop jazz becomes the next big thing mm-hmm. in in jazz, um, and so uh, Lily's dad, Gideon Pops Miller. Uh, is a swing dancer, and I based him on uh, a famous swing dancer named Frankie Manning, who's one of the uh, big commentators on the jazz documentary. Um, he's not exactly like him, but he's kind of like the the inspiration, if you will. Uh, and then her mom is a nurse, um, and um, her, her name's Sarah Moms Miller, uh, named after my grandma who had passed away before I started writing the novel. Um, and then they have three kids. Lily's the youngest. They have two boys that are twins, uh, whose names are Eli and Samuel, but uh, everybody calls them Mule. So, um, so they're the family. And then, um, you know, really they're the central. I mean, I really feel like it's a family story. Um, and a lot of people that have read, you know, not that a lot of people have read my novel, but the the few that have really keep bringing up the the title To Kill a Mockingbird uh, because they say, you know, it just has this feel of, like, it's about a little girl, you know, experiencing the world, and, and, you know, she kind of has a lot of uh, influence on her life from her brother and, you know, in this case, her brothers and her dad. Um, And so, you know, I hadn't read To Kill a Mockingbird since I was in, like, I think ninth grade, but I guess it just made. I mean, I remember loving it. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's one of my favorites, and I I since have reread it. But um, but yeah, that kind of was like one of the, uh, I guess like the underlying influences in the novel is, you know, in some ways it, it kind of reads like that book. Like it's it's, it's about a central thing that happens, uh, the way that Kill Mockingbird's about the the the, the accusation uh, of rape by May. Uh, what's her name? Mayella, May, whatever. Uh, Ewell on Tom Robinson, and then the trial. You know, the trial is really the central uh, moment of that novel, but it takes like 200 pages to get to the trial, and then the trial is like 100 pages long. Um, <laughs> we Jazz June has kind of got a similar setup. Like, it, it kind of builds and builds and builds to a climax, but you just don't see it coming until you get, you know, it, it's not like, Oh man, I bet this is what's going to happen. It, I, I'd like to say, I, I hope that if people read the novel, uh, they won't see it coming. Uh, I'll put it that way, um, because uh, it will be surprising, uh, even as exciting as it is. You know, um, early on, I feel like the the intensity just builds and builds. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of the design of the novel was. Um, I really love baseball. That was one of the sports I grew up playing as a little kid and, and just, you know, had a fondness of because my dad loved it. Um, and so uh, part of the design of the novel is the years of the novel correspond with the years, like significant years in Jackie Robinson's career. So uh, part one, the, well, the prelude or whatever, the, the yeah, prelude is the prologue. Prologue is 1943, uh, which is when the Harlem riot was. Well, one of the Harlem riots, uh, August 1st, 1943. So that's the prologue. And then part one is 1947, which, of course, is when Jackie Robinson entered the majors. 
and uh, they actually go to his first game at Ebbets Field, um, which is April 15th, uh, 1947. Um, and, of course, things happened there. Um, and then uh, 1947, they actually made it to the World Series. So there's this kind of like, oh, wow, the Dodgers, Brooklyn Dodgers got Jackie Robinson. You know, he broke the color barrier. He's proving that African Americans deserve to play right alongside white people. And, and here they are in the World Series, and, and sadly, you know, they lost to the Yankees that year because the Yankees were just really good. <laughs> um, the Yankees won something like 7 out of 10 World Series between wow. 1947 and 1957. So they were, like, dominant. But, um, but that's part one. And then part two is 1951, uh, which is when the Dodgers... Uh, blew the lead that they had over the, the Giants. So at that point, you know, the New York Yankees, New York Giants, Brooklyn Dodgers, all three in New York, all really good at baseball. Um, and the New York Giants were down something like, I don't know, I think something like, like 15 games with 30 games to play. And somehow they, they caught the Dodgers and beat them in, in like a playoff to get to the World Series. Um, so... Uh, the shot heard around the world, Bobby Thompson's home run. So, uh, 1951 is is the second you know part of the novel, and then the third part of the novel is 1955, which is actually when uh, the Dodgers won their first World Series in Brooklyn. I think their only World Series in Brooklyn. Um, but anyways, um, the the Dodgers were the Cubs before the Cubs were the Cubs because the Cubs had actually won one. Uh, the Dodgers had never won a World Series before 1955, um, and and to me, you know, them winning um, was really just a testament to kind of like the long-suffering faith of, you know, the, the diehard fans, mm-hmm. um, and so so that's kind of like part of the setup of the, the structure of the novel, and then the other setup is the jazz world, uh, so they're really kind of two two central influences on the novel. One is Jackie Robinson, obviously. The other is Charlie Parker, who, um, you know, changed jazz. I mean, he, you know, Miles Davis said jazz can be summed up in two names, Louis Armstrong, Charlie Parker. And that's about right, you know. It, it really got super popular, you know, when, when Louis Armstrong started getting popular. Um, and it really kind of lost its popularity after Charlie Parker died. So um, rather than have Charlie Parker actually in the novel, I fictionalized him um, to a character named Solo Jones, whose name is short for Solomon. Um, But Solo, I mean, (laughs) if ever there was a better name for Charlie Parker than Bird, which is a great nickname, uh, Solo, I mean, he's just synonymous with, with with the jazz Solo. You know, every guy... And girl that played jazz after Charlie Parker had to contend with, you know, his his uh, legend, his status, you know, his abilities, um, and of course, also happening in the jazz world was that there was a big heroin epidemic, which of course makes it interesting crossover to today's times because heroin is back and as deadly as ever. Um, but yeah, so so. Uh, there are two characters, one Solo Jones, who's the saxophonist, and then uh, Junebug Bell is, well, his first name is Jesse, but uh, everybody calls him Junebug, everybody calls Solomon Solo. So, 
Um, so they they are uh, they are the 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 kind of um, whatever you know they're the fascination of the Joan I'm sorry the 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 Miller family. So uh, Giddy Miller, the dad, he kind of hates the bebop movement because it's taken away his business as a swing dancer, like he's a professional swing dancer. Uh, whereas the kids love it because this is their thing to get into, you know, and, and so um, so Mule actually becomes a saxophonist himself, and Eli uh, is kind of a little bit of the comic relief, but he actually joins the Harlem Globetrotters. Um, so there's a, a, a chapter where they go to a Harlem Globetrotters game, and I'd like to think it's funny. I try to think of just the most outrageous kind of Bugs Bunny style you know, hilarious antics that could happen at a at a you know, Harlem Globetrotters basketball game, and I did see them play when I was probably about mm, about twelve or thirteen, and just lo- you know loved it. I mean, you, you can't you can't keep a frown on your face if you go to the Harlem Globetrotters. They're they're just a source of joy and wonder, and um, and that's kind of you know that's part of what I wanted to do with this novel was like tell a novel about Harlem, New York that, that you know, captures the, 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 the vices and the dangers and, and the, the sorrows of the area, but also captures the, the vibrancy and spirit and the kind of uh, just the, the, the capacity for, for joy and for family um, and, and support um, that Harlem has had, you know, for 100 years. Um, so, so, yeah, that's... Uh, that's We Jazz June, and, uh, you know, can read, read it at your leisure. Uh, at this point, I haven't published it because I'm still trying to get it published, but uh, that's, you know, that's a whole world in and of itself. Like, do you self-publish or not? Why or why not? Uh, and that kind of connects me to, you know, where I am as a professor. It's like, well, if I get it published, that gives me a lot more, you know, clout on the you know, promotion side of things than self-publishing, but, you know, people have asked me, you know, when you, when can I read your book? It's like, well, when somebody says it's okay to read, I mean, you know, that's, that's what's kind of frustrating, and as I'm sure Calvin could attest, the, the publishing of, of work is such a frustrating thing because it's like you have something you, you want to give to people and they want to take it, but the middleman's like, no, I don't think anybody wants this. It's yeah. like, no, I, I, I can name people that want. And, and so um, that's really a challenge in, in just being a creative person is how do, I, how do I make peace with my work, you know, not getting instant acclaim? You know, because for every Kendrick Lamar that gets, you know, tons of acclaim upon their first, like, major release... You know, there's a ton of people that are just, you know, grinding and, and, and working hard and learning and, and studying and thinking and, and, and creating wonderful things that we may not hear about till after they're gone, you know. And, and uh, one of those people that I've been looking at recently is Vincent Van Gogh, uh, who sold one painting in his lifetime. Uh, and now he's one of the only artists in the whole world that has a whole museum d- dedicated to him, you know. Um, and his paintings, I mean, they're priceless. You know, I mean, they're, they're hundreds of millions of dollars if, if you could even, you know, see one on the open market, which doesn't happen very often. Um, 
But, uh, you know, I just, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, success and what does that mean? And, um, you know, my teaching, it took me a long time. I mean, you know, I, I lost one job by chance and one job just by just not deserving it. Um, and it took me a long time to feel like, okay, I'm meant to be a teacher, uh, but I've been you know, teaching this in my second year, just finished uh, full-time at, at Augusta University now. Um, and I feel just very blessed and humbled to, to have the opportunity to do this because um, a lot of students you know, respond favorably to my teaching methods and, and the, the content that I choose. And, and I just feel really led to, to come up with, you know, they let us in, invent these classes and, and all we've got to do is just teach these skills and have them write and have these students write, you know, certain types of papers. Um, and rather than using it as like a soapbox to just like preach to them, I really try to like pick things that they'll engage with, like, you know, Good Kids, Mad Cities, or I, I did a class called This Mind, This Body, and This Voice, like I mentioned, that has all female uh, authors and, and musicians, and um, I've done a class called What, what Becomes of the Brokenhearted that uh, deals with depression in literature and, and music and film, and um, I'm actually working on a book right now that talks about comparing... Uh, Vincent Van Gogh, who you know I just spoke about with Amy Winehouse, who uh, is one of my other all-time favorites, um, and of course she had a ton of acclaim in her lifetime, but you know it is sadly no longer with us to be sharing her gift. Um, but yet she had such a profound impact with the work that she did make that I think you know she'll last long, long, long. You know, after she's gone, the same way that someone like Jimi Hendrix has, or Char you know, even Charlie Parker, um, and so um, I'm always looking at you know what's something that what's something that I've learned that I can you know share with people uh, in a way that brings them in instead of just as like you have to think this way or else you know um, I don't really look at teaching as teaching people how to think as much as I want to teach people to think yeah. um, and, and and just encourage them to think more uh, and of course Calvin uh, anybody listening to this knows Calvin's one of the most thoughtful people in the whole world um, and you know that's it's, it's just such a it's such a privilege to get to meet people like Calvin that that really just inspire me to be a better person a better professor a better believer a better creator, um, and you know that's that's what I think I really am getting out of you know teaching at this level is not I don't look at it like how can I get more ego you know I look at it more like man how can I get more you know more inspiration to be even better um, and I I really feel like you know it took me a long time to believe this but I I really. I know that I'm in the place where God wants me to be, not because, oh, man, I'm making so much money or oh, I'm permanent because, you know what, I'm getting paid, but it's not like I can, you know, retire at age 50. <laughs> and, I, you know, I do have a job for next year, but it's like every year it's contingent on what enrollment is. And, and you know, I've got to get a promotion at some point. Otherwise, this, uh, you know, lecture position I have is like a term limited thing. So, you know, just like, 
President Obama, he's got to find something else to do for the rest of his life. Like, I might have to, you know, do something after after being Professor Deal. Um, but the good thing is, I, I know I'll still be writing music. I'll still be, you know, reading and listening and watching and thinking. And, and, and I hope I'll still write, you know, regardless. Um, because, you know, I, I think that, you know, I think that We Jazz June is something that, people would benefit from reading uh, because I benefited from writing it. You know, I feel like I, I learned how to be in someone else's shoes by really like putting away myself and just letting the character come to life within me. Um, and that's something that, you know, I really attribute um, learning about writing from a different persona to uh, our mutual friend, Anna C. Harris Parker. Uh, who's the poetry professor in the English department here at Augusta University. She taught a class called Persona Poetry, uh, which I know Calvin took, and I can't remember when he took it, but um, that class, I sat in it a few times, but you know, in discussions with her, I realized, oh, wow, this is, this is something that's really interesting. You know, writing from a point of view that's not your own is really the best way to start thinking about what it's like to be another person. Um, because unless you get a lot of stories from a person, it's very hard to assume that you understand where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that's that's why I say, you know, half of it was was just inspiration, uh, and then half of it was just, just make, you know, making a synthesis of everything that I've seen, heard, watched, looked at, heard, you know, li listened to, observed, um, because that's, you know, I, I think that's what great, uh, you know, fiction takes is really bringing as much of the real world into it as possible such that you feel the soul of it, but you still feel like this is something that's like an amplified version of life, you know, and I feel that way about um, you know, Vincent Van Gogh's paintings or Amy Winehouse's music or Kendrick Lamar's rapping or what, you know, whatever it be. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's Adam Deal, 1982 to present. <laughs> um, before I let you go, I just want to ask you one question. I'm just curious. And um, you can answer it any way you want. Okay. 2017, music. What's your opinion? Where it is right now, because that's well, I guess in the reference to hip hop, right? A lot of people right. are saying that everybody's, um, I want to say, in a sense, systematic, but the same way of rapping. Everyone sounds the same when it comes to radio play. Yeah, and yeah. then all of a sudden, you have somebody that actually takes time on their art. Yeah, like Kendrick Lamar. Yeah, he's not the type of guy that just drops an album every single year. Right. Right. When he drops something, this is something that we've been waiting on like yeah. for a while. Cause it's exactly. Like, it's like a series of even a movie or a novel. It's like, man, I can't wait to the next one. Because you just know it's going to be theme-based. Yep. And it's going to be something highly engaging. Yeah. So considering where music is now, do you think that we're headed in like the... Is this right now what you listen to now? Is, you, do you consider that good music or what's your uh, opinion well, on that? Well, I'll say this at least going back to you know the beginning of like 
R&B and rock and roll music, which kind of, you know, simultaneously were happening in, like, the late 40s, early 50s. Um, there's just been, you know, several cycles worth of, um, you know, there's a, lo a lot of kind of, like, this has some potential to be good to, like, this is pretty good to, okay, nobody is questioning, this is amazing. Yeah. And then uh, this is pretty good to uh, this isn't so inspiring and 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 I feel like right now, you know that that's one of the problems that we have right now is like I feel like there are a couple of artists right now that that have come out in the last say ten years that are that are just all time greats and Kendrick I, you know I think at this point everybody agrees you know what like. It's not like is Kendrick Lamar better than Drake. It's like is Kendrick Lamar the best, ever? You know the goat. You know yeah. so to speak. And um, you know I, I mean I, I'll always say like you know what I, I I would rather hear you know Biggie rap the phone book than anybody. He just his cadence is so good yeah. that it's just it, it just he when he was on. He's as good as it ever was gonna be, just cause, I mean, just cause of where his voice was, like what yeah. what timbre his voice had. Um, you know, Andre three thousand has a way of, you know, throwing in little little um, turns of phrases that just they just amplify the verse. Like he <laughs> he could tell he could say you know, ring around the rosy pocket full of. Parker Posey. It's like, you know, he, he, he just could, he could just take something like a nursery rhyme and make you be like, man, this is a number one hit. Um, and, you know, I feel like the, there, are, there are talents in all of the, like, you know, quote unquote goats of all time um, and that, that each one has something that is undeniable. You know, Jay Z's swagger, Tupac's urgency, you know, um, Eminem's just, just technical ability, yeah. you know, um, and, and I feel like Kendrick is, he's bringing something new to the table because really, and that's, that's why I feel like he's so much like James Joyce, his vision is so grand compared to other rappers. I mean, Jay-Z is a great rapper, but like, he's never come up with an album that was a day in the life of, you know, what made Kendrick Duckworth turn into Kendrick Lamar. You know, like yeah. the origin story album. Um, and, you know, I feel like Kendrick is there. I feel like, you know, there's some other artists that are, you know, undeniably really, really talented. Like someone like Taylor Swift. I mean, like, can't can't get much better at pop music than Taylor Swift. I mean, that girl can write a pop song, you know? Um, I mean, I think a lot of people would say Adele is, like, you know, at the top of her game, and she's, you know, one of the all-time distinctive, you know, um, uh, moving voices, in, you know, in pop music. Um, you know, really what's hurting right now is rock music, and I feel like the better rock mm -hmm. music is the better all of the genres of music are. Because you look at, you know, there really wasn't a big rock artist in between, like, when, like, Buddy Holly died in 1959 and the Beatles, you know, really hit hit hard in 1964. 
Well, that that era is really a lot of pop music, a lot of like girl groups, and a lot of the you know um, you know kind of one hit wonders of the early '60s. A lot of surf music, mm-hmm. um, you know. And then all of a sudden the Beatles hit, and then Motown hits, then Sam Cooke hits, then I mean. Then Otis Redding hits. Then you know the the um, you know the West Coast like Mamas and the Papas and the Birds hit. You know and 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 I feel like rock music is so identified with youth culture in a way that like rap music can transcend youth culture. So can you know like like whatever um, kind of like uh, more more kind of like orchestral pop if you will mm-hmm. um but but to me like the you know smells like teen spirit is really the perfect title for you know a song about rock and roll is you know there, there's really not a big teen spirit in music right now and it's not to say that teenagers are the ones that should be writing the music it's just that the artists that are making music right now really are kind of denying the kids that are teenagers right now yeah and um, I think right now there are a lot of people trying to make music that th- people will will be impressed by instead of th- that people will just like, you know. Um, and, you know, I point to a song like Mo Money, Mo Problems. It's like that song is just a hits, great song. Like it, it takes a good instrumental from, you know, a Diana Ross song, puts three rappers on it and I mean I could just listen to that song on repeat but but you know I can't listen to like Bad and Bougie on repeat like I I can listen to it and be like okay I see why people like this or there's something about this that's like you know got a little bit of like singularity but the problem is is like that little bit of singularity is actually in common with so many artists that that's why you're talking about like everything on radio sounds the same. Well, because when one thing sounds good, yeah. they're going to knock it off and knock it off and knock it off. And, and that's why I'm surprised that Kendrick has not birthed like a whole movement of, like there should be 10 J. Coles, you know? Yeah. Um, and even J. Cole is, you know, he doesn't have any features on his records anymore. Like he, he's, he's going in his own lane. It's just that he's on the same interstate as Kendrick. You know, <laughs> like Drake is not even, he's going the opposite way, way on the interstate because Drake, Drake is, you know, much more of the like biggie mentality, you know, like I want to be a billionaire. I want to, I want to be the, the voice that everybody hears and is like, you know, turn it up, listen, you know, listen to this jam. Um, and there's, there's room on radio for, for good, you know, well-crafted pop songs, but there's also room on radio for things that make you think yeah. that are that are accessible. And Kendrick seems to be one of the few people that can do that really well, but even he is mis- misunderstood. Mm-hmm. So I feel like right now, this is kind of like... We spent the whole decade kind of having like a hangover from the 2000s. Like, the 90s kind of got to their height in 95, 96, 97, and then they kind of took a downturn. Then you get, like, NSYNC and Backstreet Boys and, and you know, Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera. And, and, and 
I feel like right now there's so many pop artists that are so, you know, so omnipresent, like Justin Bieber, Selena Gomez, Ariana Grande, you know, now like all the One Direction guys are going solo. So that's, instead of having one song by One Direction, there's going to be five songs by all the guys in One Direction. And so right now we're, we're just at a very pop-heavy, rock-poor uh musical spectrum like I feel like hip-hop has been very central for the last say 20 years mm-hmm. but it, it really hasn't it hasn't gotten you know unpopular it's just that it, it just inches forward with popularity whereas rock music just moves like a wild you know needle on a on a you know thermostat that's broken or something but um, I feel like right now we're very we're looking at at music to be like almost like equal to Instagram like if you listen to the lyrics of songs it's like you took a picture from Instagram and made a thousand words of it and there's your song and you know life is an Instagram and um, as much as people wish that it was you know you're supposed to have ups and downs in life like we all go through seasons, you know, of sorrow and grief or of shame or of frustration mm-hmm. uh, or of, you know, just kind of questioning why isn't this happening for me? And um, rather than pretending that, that you're someone you're not, I feel like, you know, I love myself. Kendrick Lamar, 2015, he kind of hit the nail on the head. Like, just accept the place you're at right now. And just never stop growing. And I, I feel like that that's kind of how I feel about music right now. It's like, well, I don't love it, but you know what? It can only get better. And so it's, <laughs> it's, it's it, it can get worse because it's so it's so focused on this like be awesome, be entertaining, be, you know, unfwittable, you know. Yeah. And 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 when we start getting songs like Dear Mama again, you know, when we start getting songs like, you know, Santa Monica by Everclear or Semi Charm Life by Third Eye Blind or like, you know, um, If It Makes You Happy by Sheryl Crow or, you know, these, these songs that are just authentic expressions of the soul. You know, that's, I think that's why Amy Winehouse hit so hard when she did was she's, she somehow had this pop gift that her songs fit on the radio, they're catchy and whatnot, but she, she's just bearing her soul. And, you know, Kendrick is, is doing that in a sense, but it's like he's so calculating about... It's very hard to tell when something's from Kendrick's point of view because he uses so many different persona, you know. And I think that that's kind of... We're not at a point where people feel comfortable just speaking the truth because they feel like, well, this doesn't sound awesome, you know? And that's, you know, this isn't an awesome world right now, you know? I mean, I would like to think that music would reflect the times, but sometimes I think music has to be denying the times for it to get to a point where it can accept the times. Yeah. And, you know, at this point, you know, I, I feel like, there's a lot of hope in the air. There's also a lot of doubt in the air. Um, but, you know, 
it's at times like this that a new generation of musicians will come up and say, these things aren't being said. Listen to me, you know. And, and I hope that that'll come sooner rather than later because I'm just ready to listen to the radio again, you know. But I do think, I do think that it's, you know, it's like big businesses own these, these songs and they, they don't want you to think about getting off Instagram. Yeah. You know, those businesses have stock in, you know, Facebook. Those businesses have stock in cameras or whatever, Snapchat. And, and so, you know, living life happens, you know, when the cameras go off. And I think that that's, that's why we're kind of stuck. Like, it feels like music hasn't really progressed in maybe like four or five years. But I do think we're at the end of a cycle. So I'm hopeful the next cycle will be interesting. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. Um, I, I would love to prick your brain more, which I will in the future. Um, looking, love to. Looking forward to uh, the publication of your novel. Yes, sir. And finishing it. I uh, have been busy at work, but because okay. there were there were times where I actually sat there and I'm. And I said, I have to work. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I, know. I was like, oh my goodness. So and one page at a time. Yeah. I, you know, and I'm not a I'm not a great reader. It's like I, I read slowly, and and you know, I I would rather somebody enjoy a chapter of it, you know, than try to like plow through the whole thing because it's you know it's like I put a lot in there. Like yeah. I, would, <laughs> I want you to think about it, you know. So, and and you know. It, it's really meant to just be like a, you know, like a love letter to black culture. It's like, I, you know, I, I'm very influenced by it, very, very impressed by it, very interested in it. And it's, it's kind of just, you know, it's like a novel that says black lives do matter, you know? Yeah. So, um, but thank you as always. Um, it's always a pleasure running into someone who speaks on something and does not mind explaining it. Yeah. Um, we live in, a, in an area where a lot of things are on the surface. It's like short talk. Yeah. With somebody that actually gives an opportunity to like digest. Somebody that can digest as you uh, dissect something yeah. and just break it down into details. And I, and I highly appreciate that. Um, this brings us towards the end of episode four. Uh, with Professor Adam Deal. Um, if anyone has any questions or concerns, you can hit us up on Facebook. And um, yeah, uh, please, uh, speak, speaking things into existence, look out for Adam's novel. I'm pretty certain it's going to come out <laughs> someday. someday. Uh, yeah, and trust, like he said, I, I understand the process of getting something published and wanting to push something out. But like he said, it's that, it's, it's that, um, it's that inevitable process and yep. it's, it's money time consideration it's this whole algorithm algorithm that's been created to say you have to pass this in order to have it pushed out to the public but this is just another reminder that we do not take our crafts lightly yep so again um you all have a wonderful day and look out for announcements for episode five